Welcome to the Engineers Podcast. My name is Aiden, and I'm a principal engineer with over 10 years of experience in mechanical engineering. And my goal is to guide you all the way from when you decide to either do an apprenticeship or go to university to becoming a professional engineer. So welcome to episode four, everyone. This is exciting because it's sunny and not too hot here in the UK. On this week's episode, I will be talking about how to get your first placement or your first job. So if you're in the middle of university and you want to do your sandwich year or your one year gap where you get your work experience, there are a number of ways to do it. When I first started university, I wasn't going to go down this route. I wanted to do my uh, three or four years and be done with it. You know, I wanted to do my foundation year, my year one, year two, year three, and just be done. But that didn't happen because for my reasons, I needed a break, really. After doing the foundation year and then year one, year two, I really needed a break before the end of university for year three. So my placement wasn't anything to do with, you know, I want work experience or anything. I just wanted a break and some money. Because you'll never be poorer than a student, especially if you live away from home, because you've got so many expenses to pay. I wanted a bit of money. I wanted to enjoy a few luxuries in life, like a new PC or something like that. Remember when I said on, I think, a couple of episodes back about specializing? This is another thing you need to check with your university, is what companies they actually have on file for placements. And I say this because my one, for example, had... I think three companies, not a lot, none for aerospace, okay? And I think all three were automotive, and one of them was Rolls-Royce. And they really push for the Rolls-Royce thing. You know, they'll, they'll tell you, oh, we've got placements at Rolls-Royce, but placements is the wrong kind of word to have. It's placement. They have a placement at Rolls-Royce, and you have to do a master's. You have to be doing your master's degree. So basically, you have to be doing your bachelor's at the time, but going on to master's to get that one place, that Rolls-Royce. And there might be 10 people doing the master's in automotive who want that position at Rolls-Royce. Even if you're doing a master's in mechanical engineering or aeronautical engineering, whatever you're doing, you will not get that placement at Rolls-Royce. It is impossible unless you're doing a master's specifically in automotive engineering. So already that is really unfair. Because you've only got like two or three placements and one of the ones that you were told in the beginning, you know, a lot of universities do this and it's not very nice for you. Okay, pretty much the person is already picked, you know, they're getting the grades and that is the one person who will go to that company. Okay, that's just how it works. Even though there's a whole department for placements, it depends what the university really uh, strives in. If the university really strives in, let's say, business or you know, civil engineering or medicine, that's where they focus all of their resources on. So, for example, it might be a good engineering course, but because they don't focus their resources on those courses, you will end up with not much choice, sometimes not even any choice at all. And this is applying to a lot of people who want to go on placement, is it's up to you to get your placement. Now, there are many ways you can go about getting your placement. I mean, (laughs) I remember, it's bad to say, but the placement person was useless at my university. And I remember even my boss during my placement, he just turned around and said, she is just, you know, swear word useless, isn't she? And I was just like mouth open. I was like, wow, 
you know, I, no, I thought it was, but this is my boss telling me because he's in communication with her because you have to have someone to communicate with while you're on placement. While I was saying why, why I found she's useless was because she sent me, you know, I was looking for a placement. I was genuinely looking and really hard. You know, I was like, do you have anything? No, we'll, we've got the Rolls Royce thing, blah, 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 but you can't have that. Well, thank you very much. And then she sent me a link to Grad Cracker. I don't know if Grad Cracker is still there, but in the day, Grad Cracker was the place to go for graduates. She was like, yeah, there's some placement things here. Why don't you supply here? I could have just done that myself, which is kind of what I was doing anyway. I was looking on there. But again, recession time, quite a hard time to find a placement. And, you know, it's very difficult to, you know, you're nervous as a young person. You're trying to look for something for your first time. You know, you're sending a CV. And problem is when you're writing a CV, it's basically crap. The first CV you write, you sit down with them and they have no idea what you need to put on your CV. And what you need to tailor it to, you know, because they think they know everything, but they won't get a professional in from, you know, a background in that, you know, even if it's from a mechanical engineering company or something else, the CV will built will be the same, but it won't be like a business CV. It won't be a medicine CV. It will be dedicated to engineering. What do you need for that CV? You know, anyone can give you a CV layout. You can find them online, but it's what you put in that CV that matters. Again, you relied on the placement. I relied on the placement office to do that for me, which again was a mistake. Now, I'm not saying all placement places will be bad at universities. I'm sure some of them are quite good. I'm just talking about my own personal experience here. So what ended up happening here was I had to make a you know, f- few phone calls to some companies just to see if they were having placement students and, and they weren't. I honestly thought at the end of it, So I was starting university again in September, okay? And I remember in July, I had nothing lined up. I was devastated a bit because I I didn't want to really go back to university for another year without having this break. Then what, what happened was I spoke to my grandmother. Now, if you remember me saying back in the first episode, my grandfather was head of engineering for British Airways um, in East Africa, in Kenya. And he had worked previous places. He had worked at British Caledonian and the RAF. I don't know if I mentioned that in the in the episode. But anyway, there was a, a lady that he knew who used to work at British Airways. She's retired now. And her partner's name was John Mitchell. Funny guy. I really liked him. And he was he was great. I think my grandfather did know him. I can't remember that. But my nan said, why don't you go and speak to John? You know, I'll take you there. So I went uh, down to see my grandmother. So I got on a train, went down then. She drove me uh, about half an hour down the road to meet uh, John Mitchell. And, And when I gave him my CV, he just looked at it and went, this is a pile of crap. Those were his words. So rewrote my CV. And he put me in touch with a company called Lecky Aviation, which was a aviation company specializing in purchasing of decommissioned aircraft and taking the components off there and refurbishing them for current aircraft. Things such as the pilot seats and the PSUs, or passenger service units, that's where the oxygen masks drop down or you control the air or can call the attendant. 
a decommissioned aircraft doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the components on the aircraft. It's just in terms of its engines are old, it might not be as sturdy as it was, so it has to be decommissioned. But the parts on the aircraft are still in good condition. You know, they're not degraded that much because, you know, you can use the passenger seats, you can use the PSUs, you can use the oxygen mask, you can use the entertainment system. So you can use all of these things again. If it's a crashed plane, though, that's different. You can't use anything from a crash plane. You cannot buy a crash plane and you can't use any equipment from it. They also had this like subsidiary next door to them, which was called 25 Plus Repair Center. It was a bit of a silly name for a repair center because 25 was a portion of the aircraft, which for the life of me, I can't remember. I think it's seats and PSU modules that are covered under 25. Now, I could be wrong now. It's been many years, but I know seats are definitely covered under that in uh, the chapters of aviation. And I think oxygen was like 33 and life jackets were something like 49. I can't remember exactly, but they did all of that, which is why there was the plus there. It used to be called 25 Repair Center, and then they had to call themselves 25 Plus because they really cocked up on the name because they did more than just repair parts under the 25 chapter. So already that was funny. That was already the company that I started working with. And, you know, thanks to John Mitchell, who spoke to the CEO at the time. And then I started working in the repair center. And my boss's name was Tony. Great guy. It was really good as a break from uni and just to, you know, to get in there. So I had to do the interview when I started. I got interviewed by the CEO, Andrew and Tony. And basically... It was, yeah, you know, it's it's good to meet you. And, you know, when can you start? And I remember that my first day, I got I was going to get the train from Brighton to Chichester because uh, that's where they were based. And the train was delayed for about four hours. Something had happened on the tracks or there was a signaling issue. Anyway, trains are always delayed in this country. There was no replacement bus service, nothing. So I was panicking because it's my first day, I'm going to be late. So I got a taxi from Brighton to Chichester, which is not close at all. And that ended up costing me, I think, £80 at the time, which was because of the recession, the double, the dollar was double, so $160. A funny thing was, is that when I had my reference letter written two years later by them, they remembered that and they put that in there. So always remember to go above and beyond to do something. So when I first got there, I was panicked. I was flustered. And they said, what happened? I said, I missed my train. And this happened. And you took a taxi down. You should have just stayed at home. And I was like, no, no, I had to be here for it for the first day. Nothing else matters. Just make sure you get there for the first day. Okay, that's the important thing. Set the impression. Because that's how they're going to look at you for the rest of your placement. So the best way to get a placement is definitely to go through some networking, be it LinkedIn is great these days. You can network on LinkedIn. LinkedIn wasn't really around back then uh, the way it is now. And also, do you know someone? Do you know someone who knows someone who knows someone? You know, that's the thing. That's the way to get in the first time is it's who you know, not what you know. So if you've ever heard that before, definitely exists on all levels. And all I did at this place, and I'm not even joking, right? Engineering placement, I did a little bit of CAD design. 
But there was a lot of times where I was making tea for the boss, stacking shelves, building shelves, building benches, occasionally repairing some seats, doing stock inventory, relabeling things. It wasn't a glorious job at all. Certainly not an engineering one. You know, where you would be heavily involved in, you know, engineering work, be it designing, be it prototyping, R&D, anything like that. This was not that. This was not glorious in any way, but the opportunity they gave me was great because even though I was building shelves as a placement person and buying stuff and basically just the admin person who makes tea, I'm where I am today because I did that placement. Even though it doesn't seem glorious, it doesn't matter. Okay, don't be stuck up on the glory. Don't be like, I want to go for the Boeings. I want to go for the Rolls Royces. I want to go for these big guys. If you can get in, that's great. Okay, there's no harm in applying for them, but don't just base yourself looking at them because that is where your downfall would be. Always keep your mind open. You know, you go with your gut because in July, I had nothing. And by the time August started, I had organized everything, gone on placement. And what's even a bigger piss take is that you have to pay the university when you go on placement. So instead of paying whatever it was back then, which was, I think, 10000 you pay them half just to have the lecturer come and visit you every now and again, like twice in the year. You know, you had to do a logbook of stuff. And he knew I was just putting up shelves. You know, he couldn't say anything. And he was like, oh, you know, you should be doing more than that. But I didn't care. It was a great place to work. You know, they made me feel really welcome. I enjoyed it. They knew how to throw a good party, great Christmas party. And and that is where I was introduced to, like, a good small company culture. You know, it was great. The people I worked with were great. Contractors are great to work with. They are so funny. You know, and they treated me so well back then. And it was really good. I have no qualms with my placement. I really liked it. Not only that, but because I did really good work for them during that one year, they brought me back for another year part-time. So whatever day I had off university, I would go and work there. And that's how I made money, you know, because beforehand I used to work at McDonald's. And when I when I came back, I was panicking. I was like, how am I going to get money? I'm going to have to go work at McDonald's again. And I really didn't want to. And then I got a phone call saying, uh, you know, can you come back and do this for us? And I stayed there another year with a pay rise as well, which was great. So you'd be surprised how many doors a placement can open. Now, moving on to getting your first job. I remember this clearly because getting your first job is really difficult for a lot of people. And something just compelled me because I was applying for a week or two to things and, you know, you get rejected, you get down. But again, all it was, it was just filtering software. You know, that's it. That's all that happens is... If you have a CV that is not good, again, you'll just be filtered out automatically. And you'd be surprised how well this filtering works. You know, we'd look at all the keywords in your CV. If you don't have that keyword, your CV is already gone. So let's say you're applying for a design role. And specifically, they're looking for, let's say, design in SolidWorks. 
But on there, you have 3D CAD designer, fluent in a lot of softwares, but you haven't named the software. You're going to be flagged out. Again, if they're looking for, let's say, someone who has reduced scrap, they might be looking for a keyword in there, like scrap reduction. And if that's not in there, again, out. Especially today with data protection, you don't need to put your age in there. So they'll never know if you're too young or too old. And technically, they're not allowed to ask you your age either. So that has now become a thing of the past, and you don't need to put your photograph there either. So the main thing is you start with the keywords, and you tailor the CV to the job you want. So if you want a job in design, make sure you've got a lot of things in there. So if you've done AutoCAD at university, mark down your AutoCAD, mark down your computational fluid dynamics, mark down everything that could be a keyword in your skills. Have you used the project software? What project softwares have you used? Microsoft Project, Asana, all of these ones. That's what's important is the keywords. And once you get those keywords right, what you'll start noticing is you'll start getting more emails from recruiters. And I remember going through all of them, and one of them was driving license essential, and I didn't have a driving license at the time, so I just ignored that. But I put my CV on that website. And this was at like 3 or 4 in the morning. You know, I just something, I was playing some games, and then suddenly at like 3 in the morning, I was like, I should look for a job. This was five or six weeks after I graduated university, because I went for a holiday for a few weeks and then came back. And I was just compelled at like three in the morning to do this. So I uploaded my CV, I applied for loads of jobs, but I didn't apply for that one. But I uploaded my CV to the website. Then a few days later, I got a phone call saying, we've got this job. Uh, it's this one. And I said, but I don't have a driving license. They said, so what? So it says that it's essential. And they're like, no, don't worry about it. And this was the recruiter. So again, with getting your first job, recruiters are quite essential because they will highly likely get you at least an interview. Because when you speak straight to the HR rep of a company, you are probably not going to get through because there's no one there to convince them. Because a recruiter will talk to you, find out what you want, but also look at the best interests in the company. But they will more focus on you because if they think they could get you the job, they will get paid. They will get some commission for it. So it's important for them more than you think because they need to fill that role in the company. And yes, there might be a few of you, but there might be a few roles in that company. So they might push you for another role. So if a recruiter calls you, just always be polite to them. And if you're not looking for a job, just decline them nicely. Okay, just say not right now, but here's my CV in future, whatever. So anyway, I got the phone call from the recruiter and I'm like, okay, sure, let's do it. You know, and he's going through everything, telling me that this is what you need. I've seen this on your CV. It's for a design engineer in aerospace. And I was like, okay. And one of the things was, can you write instructions? Because he had a few can... And this is another thing about recruiters. This is bad advice for the recruiter, but for you, it's good advice. Never tell a recruiter what the important questions were. And by that, I mean, you know, tell them, oh, what are your strengths and weaknesses? Standard question. Where do you want to be in five years? Again, standard question. But when they get into the real stuff... For example, the aerospace job I went to was describe how you would change a car tire. It was something simple like that, okay? Now, it was for writing instructions for people working on aircraft. It's not, you know, you change a car tire. So you would say, I'll try and make this quick. So you'd say, basically, get your T-bar out, undo the nuts, and pull the wheel off, put the new wheel on, redo the nuts, and off you go. But in that, I didn't say jack the car up. I didn't say what happens if the nuts get stuck. You know, maybe spray them with some WD-40 or 
put your foot on the T-bar to try and get it done. And then when it came to taking the tire out, where do you put that tire? Where do you get the other tire from? How tight do you do the nuts up after? And then jack the car down. So already, you can tell I've added some steps to it. And there can be more steps. There can be pressure checks and everything else, whatever. But the recruiter told me that. Okay, so I prepared for that question. And then I was given that question. How would you change a car tire? And because I was given that question ahead of time, I was able to go into it and beat the other candidates. There were, I think, six or seven candidates. And the recruiter told me, these are the questions that you'll be asked. So I was more prepared than the first person was because the first person went in there and got all of these questions asked and then probably got nervous and then just lost out. Second person goes in there. And I think during the second one, they had a light bulb. Okay. How would you change a light bulb? And then by the third one, the guy kind of knew that because I think he had asked the first two how you would change a light bulb. And then he asked the third one, how would you change a car tire? So again, the the third guy went in there thinking he would get the question about changing a light bulb, but he got a car tire instead. And he wasn't ready for that. Well, as the recruiter told me, it could be a light bulb or a car tire. And for me, it was a car tire, but I'd prepared for both scenarios. And then on top of that, I took a design portfolio. And, and this is another important thing. Always take a portfolio with you because I had all my design drawings from university, what I was making, you know, third angle projection drawings, all properly presented in a really nice portfolio. First job, you know, just to make that impression that actually I can use your design software quite well. And that was another plus to getting that job. So I was well prepared, had a portfolio, dressed accordingly for it because that's important. You ask the recruiter, how do they dress? You know, and they're smart, so wear a tie. And generally, until you're a high level engineer, you should always dress smart because you have to beat the other candidates somehow and turn up early. Okay, those are the main things. Dress smart, turn up early, turn up prepared for anything and all the questions that they would ask. Uh, again, you can Google typical interview questions, but engineers don't get asked typical interview questions, especially if they're being interviewed by other engineers. So anyway, after the interview, you know, the recruiter calls you and you say, yeah, this this happened and that happened. But you don't tell them the little details. You know, You don't say, I took a portfolio and I did this, I did that, because that's just ammo for the next candidate to beat you. And out of all the five, I was the one that got the job and one other person as well. And, you know, it was a great first job. Pay's not that great. But again, recession time, aviation, take what you can get. So I got my junior engineering job in aerospace design. And it was both interesting and boring. I mean, AutoCAD is a very boring thing to design with because it's all 2D. But, you know, doing all of the structural and emergency equipment layouts, going on aircraft themselves. And, you know, I'll also never forget a time where the company that I worked with charged, I think, 850 pounds a day. And I went on a Airbus because what had happened was I did the emergency layout, picked the uh, emergency illumination signs and said, well, you need to put these in and these are the right ones. And they came back and said, oh, these are wrong. You've done it wrong and all of this. And I just said to my boss, they're definitely not wrong. You know, we've double checked them. You've double checked them. Everything's correct. And they say, okay, well, we need your engineer down here now. Well, okay, that's 850 pounds to the company. Anyway, I go down there. It's only, um, I think, a half hour drive away anyway, but that's 850 pounds. And I get on the aircraft and, and I look 
at the sign, and they're right. The sign is the wrong way around because that's how it fits. Internally to that sign, there is a little box unit that has the lights in it, and the sign can only go one way in that box unit. Now, I think you know where I'm going here. They put the box units all the way down the aircraft the wrong way around. So in all the box units, the emergency exit sign next to the door was the wrong way around. So instead of going E-X-I-T, it went T-I-X-E. So I called the boss who's working on the aircraft. And I said, I found your problem. And I showed him, basically, you've installed these the wrong way around. And he was so embarrassed that it was unreal. It was so funny. It was one of the funniest things I remember because... You paid £850 to call me out just to tell you that you've installed these the wrong way around. And I said, you know what? I have nothing else to do. I'm here all day. I'll just turn them all around for you. That took me 10 minutes and I was done. And then I had to linger on for a couple of hours just in case they had any more questions and also to make it worth their money. And when your engineer problem solves, now this was a very minor problem, which was quite amusing to me and to my boss and to everyone else. And another one that was good was in a... Boeing 737, what they were doing was they were taping over the fire alarms in the baggage area down below. The fire suppression system, what detects the fire, and I can't remember if there was a extinguishing system or not, but they covered the sensors with cabin tape, because you wrap the cabin in tape so you don't damage it with luggage. But they also wrapped the fire thing. And, you know, they pay a lot of money. When you modify an aircraft, you pay a lot of money for this. One of the funny things was all the engineers were sitting around a table debating what you would do, how would you not cover it? And I just went, why don't you just paint it red and have a sign do not cover? It's a simple solution. It's easy. And you're not installing anything because they wanted to install cages and everything else, which would have been a nightmare. But sometimes the simplest things can be solved really easy. So that was that. Paint red and stick sign there. Now, the crew that were working on it were not happy, but because it's a huge problem if you don't resolve it, you know, you have to go back to the aviation body and say, we've resolved this now because that is an instant failure and the aircraft cannot fly. So simple solution for something that would have been so complicated. Again, I don't do the painting, but that's a problem solved. You know, no one else thought just to paint it. That was an easy problem to solve and it's done. And that is what engineers do. And that is pretty much how you would go about getting your first job. You know, if you know someone, that makes it easier. But if you don't, the experience helps from your placement. Take a portfolio with you and listen to the recruiter because they will tell you things that will help you because they need to make money. And that is important to remember is that they're not doing you a favor. They're doing themselves a favor. But if you get the job, then it's good for you. I hope you did enjoy this episode, everyone. I really enjoyed it. It reminded me about how I went about getting my first job and my placement, to be fair. All the hoops I had to jump through. And the thing is, you cannot rely on other people. And that is the main thing to remember. You know, the placement office at university, they get paid either way. Whether they find you a job or not, they will just get paid the same. They don't get a commission like a recruiter. And generally, they wait for companies to come to them. They don't go and seek them out most of them don't anyway. They'll just wait. To them, it doesn't really matter. They offer this sandwich here and you can't get a sandwich placement. What's the point of a sandwich here? 
But anyway, I'm going to go off again if I keep going. So if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to get in touch, you know, be it by email or LinkedIn. I'll leave a description to everything in the in the links below. And, you know, if you did like the show, please do subscribe to it and just give me your feedback. I would really appreciate that. And until the next episode, I hope you have a great day and during this journey to you becoming the best engineer you can be. Bye.